I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the Spanish Arpada. I'm Sarah. And I am Peter. In this series, Joel Rey, we are ranking and reviewing all of the rulers of Spain from Leo Vigil to Felipe VI. Join us as we learn about each ruler and then rank them in the categories of conquistadores. I'm guessing this involves violence. No me digas. Let's think about how that went. Yeah. Uh, Ortodoxia. Oh, he was thinking of his parents, I'm sure. El resto and then decide whether they deserve to sign the Fuero with their signature, Mio El Rey, or whether we tell them, Fuera. to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is season five. Our topic is Vulgar History Internationale, Scandaliciousness Without Borders, Tits Out, Sans Frontières. And this is another episode inspired by a suggestion from a Tits Out Brigade member, uh, Alicia, or maybe Alicia, I want to thank her for bringing this story to my attention, and I have to say, um, in a very attention-grabbing way, and this is why I suggest if you're going to be offering names of people you think would be good subjects, you really want to just succinctly explain to me why they're cool. And Alicia just basically said, I think you should do Inez de Castro, the zombie queen of Portugal, and I was like, I'm sorry, the zombie queen of Portugal, and I was in, and that's, that's what we're doing. Spoiler zombie queen of Portugal. So we're looking at Inez de Castro after Alicia brought her to my attention. And also thank you to Alicia for answering some questions about Portuguese culture um, and helping me with figuring out things like the significance of Inez. So my other sources include um, an episode of the Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast, uh, Wikipedia, um, theroyalarticles.com, and also dailyartmagazine.com. So 
As part of our international season, the story takes us to some places we've been before, but not in a time period uh, that we talked about before in this podcast. So this is Portugal, and also some parts take place in the Kingdom of Castile, both of which are in the north slash middle of what is modern day Spain. Sorry, Portugal is not in Spain. Portugal, the Kingdom of Portugal is basically where Portugal is now. It was just a bit bigger then. Um, Castile is in the north middle of modern day Spain. And this is in the 14th century, so which is like 100 years before Isabel of Portugal was trapped in her ghost castle from that previous episode. So these are all new royal people to learn about in this era. So the Iberian Peninsula, which is what we would now see on a map as Spain and Portugal, just kind of like that big square shape sticking off of Western Europe, was divided into several kingdoms. From west to east, these kingdoms were Portugal, which is where modern-day Portugal is, but I think bigger than, um, Galicia, León, Castile, which you've heard of before, and Aragon, which you've also heard of before. As per usual, they each had their own king, always a king, I think, never queen. And so these little kingdoms had various alliances and feuds. Everyone was related to everyone through marriage, um, for alliance reasons and stuff. But anyway, little kingdoms always at war with each other. This is way before um, Isabella and Ferdinand came along and consolidated it all. This week's heroine is Inez de Castronez Perez de Castro, who I'm going to call Inez de Castro because that is how she is best known. She was born in Galicia, I assume, I mean, probably because her father was a Galician nobleman and his name was. And I mean, my Portuguese accent is non-existent, but your girl's giving it her best here. Her father was Pedro Fernandez de Castro, one of three people, I think, potentially four people in the story named Pedro. But he's not in it after this paragraph, so don't worry about it. Papa Pedro. Papa Pedro was descended in an illegitimate way from the kings of Castile, Leon, and Galicia. And this is a situation where even if you're the illegitimate son of a king, you still get um, lots of power and prestige. Um, but he was not himself a king or a prince. He had a wife named Isabel Ponce de Leon. Was she related to the explorer? I mean, everyone's related to everyone, so probably... That is not who Inez's mother was. Inez's mother was Papa Pedro's mistress, who was a Portuguese noblewoman named Aldonza Lorenzo de Valadares. So she had several siblings, some full siblings, some half siblings, who included a sister, Juana de Castro, and two brothers, Alvaro and Fernando, who are going to become important later on. So just pin that for later on. So Inez was born in 1320, again, about 100 years before Isabel of Portugal and the Ghost Castle. In terms of other people who've talked about on this podcast, 1320 was very close to the same time that uh, Joanna of Naples was born. As per ever, who knows what her childhood was like, because I can never find out that information about anyone for this podcast, but we do know that when she was about 20 years old or so, she was sent from Galicia to Portugal to serve as a lady-in-waiting to her cousin, I'm not exactly sure how they're cousins, but all the nobles in the whole Iberian Peninsula were all related somehow. And her cousin was Constanza Manuel of Villena. Villena? A note on Constanza, who's kind of like an important secondary character in the story. So Constanza was basically the same age as Inez. Um, as a child, she'd been married to her cousin, not Inez, another cousin. Again, just everyone's related. Anyway. Constanza had been put in a child marriage to a person who would later become King Alfonso XI of Castile, but he was not yet the king. He was, I guess, the prince or the infante. But so they were married for just two years, and then Alfonso had the marriage dissolved so he could marry Maria of Portugal, who gave him a son, Pedro of Castile. This is the second Pedro in the story, P2. And it wasn't very straightforward to just, like, get rid of Constanza, like, divorce, not an option. I think they must have had the marriage annulled. Anyway, or he tried to. Constanza 
was trapped in a tower. Mark that off on your bingo card. Um, in Toro. So he just kind of was like, I don't want to be married to Constanza anymore. I'm just going to lock her in a tower and marry Maria, I guess. Um, but she had a good dad. There are one of at least two good dads in this story. Constanza's father waged war against Alfonso for years um, for doing this, for um, ending the marriage and for trapping her in a tower. Eventually, Alfonso and Constanza's dad reached a peaceful understanding after mediation and Constanza was released from prison. I don't I don't have the year written down, but she's probably like, you know, 17 at this point. Um, but remember Alfonso, dirtbag, um, he married Maria of Portugal. Anyway, so Maria of Portugal's dad, another good dad, learned that Alfonso is treating Maria badly. Um, and because... Maria was from Portugal. Uh, this meant that the government of Portugal was now mad at the government of Castile because Alfonso was just fucking everything up. Ultimately, this led to Portugal making a deal, like the country, the government of Portugal making a deal with Constanza's father. All of this led to Constanza's second marriage. Again, she is a teenager. And her marriage is to Pedro heir to the throne of Portugal. And this is the main Pedro. We're just going to call him Pedro. The other Pedros, there's Papa Pedro, there's P2. This is the main Pedro. And this is the wedding that kicks everything off. So Constanza, aged about 20, is being married to Pedro, similar age. Um, and Constanza's cousin, Inez, was sent to be one of Constanza's ladies-in-waiting. So the, the chessboard is all set up. Because apparently from the first time their eyes met, Inez and Pedro of Portugal fell instantly and passionately in love. Um, apparently he was drawn to her heron-like neck, which is a very poetic thing. Who knows what she was drawn to? You know, maybe he had nice eyebrows. I don't know. But bear in mind, she came to town to be lady in waiting to Constanza, her cousin, who is marrying Pedro. But Pedro was drawn immediately to Inez. Um, she was his one true love. But for political reasons, he knew he had to marry Constanza. So I really feel badly for Constanza in terms of like just bad luck, two husbands in a row. Um, and even after they were married, Pedro apparently neglected her in order to focus all of his attention on Inez. So there is a legend claiming that Pedro used to send love letters to Inez through a pipe that carried water from like one building to another building. So like romantically, I don't know, letter in a bottle type situation that would kind of go along the like the plumbing from one building to another. But um, that is probably not true because the building they say he was sending it to, like these are two buildings connected by plumbing, but Inez wasn't staying in that place. But here's the thing. So this story is wildly popular and has been for centuries um, amongst Portuguese literature. So some of the most beautiful pages of Portuguese literature have turned this um, love letter in a bottle going through. Let's see. So allegedly the two buildings that are connected are the Quinta de Pombal and the Monastery of Santa Clara Avelha. And so this, the Monastery of Santa Clara Avelha has become the backdrop of a lot of the stories, the retellings of the saga of Pedro and Inez. Because that property used to supply water through an aqueduct that connected the royal palace and the monastery. So, like, if you're going to send love letters in bottles, that this building would have to be involved. Later on, this building comes up as well. Because, spoiler, eventually Inez is going to die. And allegedly the water in the aqueduct turned red after her death. But she's not dead for a long time now. And so it's just kind of this awkward love triangle between cousins. So... Constanza gave birth to a daughter named Maria, and then she gave birth to her, the first son, who she named Luis. And then in a cunning maneuver, which I respect, um, aimed at trying to end her husband's love affair, Constanza invited Inez to be the godmother of the newborn son. What's cunning about that is that in the eyes of the Catholic Church, which is the church they were a part of, um, a godmother is considered a member of the family. So if Inez is considered a member of the family, then that would render her affair with Pablo incestuous, and then they would have to stop, Constanza thought. But this whole scheme 
which I respect, um, did not come to much because baby Luis died after a few weeks and that's super sad for everybody, obviously. Um, meanwhile, so this has been going on for, I think four years. Um, Pedro and Inez wildly in love, potentially sending letters through aqueducts. This was not good for business, like the family business of Pedro, which was trying to avoid war between Portugal and all the nearby kingdoms. So Pedro's father tried to separate them, um, which he did. His attempt was he banished Inez from court to go off and live in Castile. But guess what? Distance could not stop their passion. And Pedro just peaced out of Portugal to go visit her as often as he could. Meanwhile, Constanza, who I really truly feel bad for in this situation because she never asked for this situation to be in. She was in failing health. Um, she gave birth to another son named Fernando and then died two months later. So I don't think it was like a death and childbirth scenario as much as it was like giving birth, put a strain on her body and she was already ill. Anyway, Constanza, RIP, you deserve better out of literally everyone in your life, except maybe her dad who seemed like an okay person. But with her dead, now we can all just like ship Inez and Pedro without feeling bad about it because he's not married anymore. So Pedro and Inez also pretty psyched about this development because he was no longer married. So he got Inez, brought her back to Portugal, and they moved in together in Coimbra, which is a riverfront city in central Portugal where they lived in the palace Santa Clara Avelha, the one from before where people with the aqueduct. So like Inez didn't live in there before, but now they live there together as a little happy family. They didn't get married, or did they? We'll return to that point later. They were just kind of living together, seemingly. Um, Pedro's father kept trying to arrange a new marriage for Pedro to a noblewoman or a princess from another kingdom because that was like the job of the heir to the throne is to like make alliances through marriage. But Pedro refused to take a wife who wasn't Inez. And he was not given permission to marry Inez because... As a non-royal, she was not deemed eligible to be queen. So, married or not, these two settled into a domestic situation in which Inez had four children. Afonso, who died in infancy, Beatriz, Joao, and Dinis. When they were hanging out together, Pedro became close to Inez's brothers, the De Castro brothers, remember? Alvaro and Fernando. And the brothers, uh, just seems like, you know, it's like, Pedro is getting like an outside opinion after having lived at court for a while and Inez's brothers, potentially Inez herself was involved as well. Um, they tried to convince him to try and claim the throne of Castile, which Pedro technically could do because he was the grandson of Sancho IV of Castile, um, who I believe Inez was also descended from in some way, but everyone is related. Like, don't worry about it. Pedro was like, you know what? Great idea. I think I will try and usurp the throne of Castile. But the thing is, of course, if he tried to do this, that would damage the already fragile relations between Portugal and literally everywhere else. But Pedro was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. And he declared his intentions to take over Castile and Leon, which were like a combined kingdom. The king of Castile and Leon at this point is, of course, someone else called Pedro. Um... And in fact, it is P2. So it's Pedro of Castile, um, who is the son of Constanza's first husband. Remember, he was terrible. With Maria of Portugal, the woman he left Constanza for. So P2 is the king of Castile and Leon. So Pedro's dad was not into the whole taking over Castile scenario. And in fact, he thought that this was yet more evidence that Inez and her brothers had too much influence on Pedro. He also worried that Inez and her brothers might try and insert her children into the line of succession for the throne of Portugal, replacing Constanza's legitimate children. So remember, Constanza had two surviving children, one of whom was Fernando, the boy who had been born two months before she died. But um, both of her children had health issues and were apparently sickly. Remember Constanza had been sickly as well? So maybe they like inherited something from her or maybe the fact that she'd been sick when she was pregnant. Anyway, Fernando was heir to the throne, but he was sickly. But Inez and Pedro's children were all apparently uh, healthier. So that might be used, Pedro's dad thought, as an excuse to try and get Inez and Pedro's children to become the heirs to the throne instead of Fernando. 
Um, but also Pedro's dad was like, it wouldn't be hard to kill little Fernando because he's so sick already. And he was worried that Inez's brothers might like literally try to kill Fernando, which after, after the ditta of it all from last week, it's like, you know what? Little baby princess and kings like get murdered in these stories. So it's a clear risk. So Pedro's dad was worried that Fernando is little baby Fernando is going to be killed by the de Castro's. Basically, all the Portuguese nobles were worried about the consequences of Inez's brothers and Inez. Like, what was their influence over Pedro? Because everything seemed kind of headed towards civil war. And Pedro refused to marry someone other than Inez, which was not helping matters out. Because, like, if he had married someone from another kingdom, then that would have maybe made people less likely to go to civil war. But, so, what happened is that Pedro's dad and his advisors were becoming desperate to find a way to, quote, liberate Pedro from Inez and her brother's influence. And not a very creative group. What they thought of was, let's just murder Inez. So initially, Pedro's dad was reluctant to agree to such an extreme action against the mother of his grandchildren. Like, thank you. But January 7th, 1355, Pedro was away on a business trip. His dad called the counselors into a meeting, and at the end, he finally agreed to send three of his courtiers, so people named Pero Coelho, Alvaro Gonsalves, and Diego Lopez Pacheco to Coimbra to the castle with the aqueducts in order to kill Inez. And I think King Dad came along too. I think he was there. I think they all went together. So anyway, so they arrived, and Inez appeared surrounded by her four children and she appealed to the king who was there yeah so the king was there she appealed to the king um and he was just like "Ooh, do i want to kill like my son's beloved and the mother of my four grandchildren who were so cute and right there finally the king left the room saying to the others do whatever you want and as soon as he had turned his back the sentence was carried out inez de castro was executed and so this took place in the estate of Santa Clara of Velha, where they had been living together since the death and the place from the story of the aqueducts. But a myth would develop that associates Inez's death with another place called the Quinta das Lagrimas, the estate of tears, where people believe her blood still stains the red stone bed of the spring on this estate, where she is said to have cried out for the last time while being pierced by the daggers of her killers. Um, and then the whole thing about the water ran red, etc. Like, you might be like, and this is like 20 minutes into an episode and the main character is already dead. But here's, you forgot, zombie queen of Portugal. The story continues. So, Inez may be technically dead, but her story is far from over. So one account suggests that Pedro, remember he was on a business trip when this all happened, had gotten a heads up about... The murder but he thought it was a lie and didn't believe it so d did he get a heads up before i don't know but regardless when he learned that inez had been actually been killed the terrible news drove him into a fury obviously so knowing that his father had ordered the killing slash been there pedro staged a revolt against the king slash his dad for several months with the support of inez's brothers troops swept through the country and laid siege to the city of porto Finally, it all ended when his mom, Queen Beatrice, intervened to end the revolt and bring about a reconciliation between father and son. Um, and Pedro formally promised to forgive the incident. I feel like Queen Beatrice, what mediation skills? Like, how on earth would you have gotten this to happen? Good job. So Pedro pardoned the men who had killed Inez and everything settled down on the royal family for two years. Two years later, um, King Dad died. Pedro became the king. And guess what? Pedro didn't mean it when he said he forgave them because he was ready for vengeance. So as soon as he was crowned and in spite of his promises of forgiveness, Pedro did a trade, um, sort of like a prisoner exchange with Castile because he found out two of the assassins, Pero Coelho and Alvaro Gonsalves, had been living in Castile. And so he was like, I'll trade some prisoners from Portugal if you give me those two guys. And Castile agreed. The third assassin, Diego Lopez Pacheco, had fled to Aragon, and Pedro was not able to secure his return. But he had two of the three killers. 
Pero and Alvaro were both subjected to torture, then were gruesomely executed in a way that paralleled how Pedro felt when Inez had been killed, um, which is he had their hearts ripped out. So from one, the heart was cut out and ripped out of the body through his back. And from the other, the heart was cut out and pulled through the chest. So Pedro is just like, this is how I felt when Inez died. Like my heart was ripped out of my chest. So guess what? Ripping your heart out of your chest. Um, which honestly is like, if you don't have a partner who would do that, if you were murdered, then like, are you in a good relationship is the question I would pose to all of you. So all this happened in front of the Royal Palace. Um, Pedro watched this all while having dinner, which is like a pretty distressing yet iconic thing to do. So this event is why Pedro became known as Pedro the Cruel. But here's the thing. So there were three King Pedros in this era at this time. There's our Pedro, there's P2, and then also the King of Aragon was, guess what, also called Pedro. So it's like, was our guy Pedro the Cruel? Like, because each of these three have, at some point, were written about by somebody as Pedro the Cruel. So were writers just confusing them all? Like, is this what happens when everyone is cousins and they're all called Pedro? I don't know. Does just somehow the name Pedro the Cruel in Portuguese rhyme or something? Anyway, so... Pedro, a.k.a. Pedro the Cruel. But other than this one thing, <laughs> this one like pretty brutal thing, um, it sounds like our Pedro's entire reign was evidence of his benevolent character. So he's also sometimes called Pedro the Just. So like, okay. Um, but story's still not finished. So in 1360, Pedro publicly announced that actually he and Inez had been secretly sexually married two years after Constanza died. Um, and everyone's like, wait, we thought you were just like living together. Like that's the whole thing because you couldn't marry her because she couldn't be the queen. And Pedro is like, haha, but we were secret sexy married. Um, and I have witnesses. So a bishop and one of the bishop's servants were presented as witnesses of the wedding. Although nobody seemed to remember the date when it had happened. Um, this announcement was backed up by a totally not forged document from the Pope showing that Pedro had gotten consent from the Pope to remarry. And everyone was like, okay, I guess Inez retroactively was your wife, which makes her a person who has been dead for five years, our queen. So our queen, our queen is now a dead person. Yes. So this is how, again, five years after her death, Inez de Castro was declared Pedro's legitimate wife and therefore the queen of Portugal. Um, this was, as you might assume, the only time a dead person was crowned Queen of Portugal. But also, and probably the reason why Pedro had, one of the reasons Pedro had done this was this legitimized their three surviving children because the secret marriage, the alleged marriage, had happened before the children were born. So now they were no longer illegitimate. They were legitimate children. Um, but now that Inez was the zombie queen, she was permitted to have a much grander final resting place than what she'd been first given. And so Pedro ordered her body to be exhumed and taken to the monastery of Santa Clara and Coimbra, oh, taken from the monastery of Santa Clara and Coimbra to the monastery of Alcobaza, where Inez was reinterred in an extraordinary ceremony on April 2nd, 1361. Chronicler Fernão Lopez described it, and I'm just going to like read what he wrote because it's a beautiful piece of writing. Pedro ordered a tomb of white marble, finally surmounted by her crown statue, as if she was a queen, and then he caused the tomb to be placed in the monastery of Alcobaça and made the corpse come from the monastery of Santa Clara of Coimbra, escorted by many horses and noblemen and maids and clergymen. And all the way through, a thousand men were holding candles in such a way that always the body was enlightened. And thus it arrived at the monastery, which was 17,000 leagues away from Coimbra, where the body was buried with many religious services and great solemnity. And it was the most magnificent translation ever seen in Portugal. The extraordinary splendor of this ceremony was so impressive that um, a person who wrote the a History of Portugal in 1893, described the scene with a metaphor, Inez de Castro was led to El Cobasa between two lines of stars. And I mean, that's the kind of love we all deserve. Like someone who's going to rip out the hearts of your killers and get a thousand candle holding guards to escort your grave 17,000 leagues. Like this is why 
I'm strongly considering giving Pedro the Lady Jane Seymour Outstanding Supporting Performance Award because all of all the heroines of every episode deserves this sort of treatment. The tomb itself is gorgeous. I will 100% post a picture of it on Instagram and maybe also on the website just so you can truly or just like Google it like in his De Castro tomb. It is gorgeous. So my best attempt to describe it. Pedro made sure that Inez's royal title, queen, was visible on the tomb and then ordered that his tomb be laid next to her so they could be facing each other or sort of across from her so they could be next to each other for all of eternity. The, the tomb itself, it's, it's like a lying down statue. So it's carved out of limestone from Coimbra. So it's, it depicts, so it's like a lying down Inez is like lying on top of this like big limestone thing. Um, surrounding her statue, like the her personage, are six little angels who are sort of taking the care of the creases of the royal clothes and raising her head a little bit as though to make her like eternal slumber more comfortable. Her statue has a serene face. Um, let's see. The tomb itself is supported by six hybrid beings that have human faces and animal bodies. On the like sides of sort of the um the bottom of it it's like a big box with like her lying on top and so the big box part on the bottom depicts in carving um scenes of the life of jesus christ um so one of the scenes is the final judgment there's a belief that with his last scene pedro wanted to show that he and inez had a place in heaven unlike the people who did them wrong like his father and her killers on the bottom left of the like box part, we can see the dead who resurrect and go out of their graves. God is at the top center watching over everything. It is a really beautiful piece of art and no one knows who carved it, but it's um, very spectacular. So, Zombie Queen. There is one longstanding myth slash legend that prior to being reburied, Pedro had the corpse of Inez placed on the throne, put the royal crown on her skull because she'd been dead for five years, um, and forced the entire court to swear allegiance to the dead queen by kissing the hand of the corpse. Um, this is most likely a legend slash myth because the first time it was ever written in was in a play from 200 years after all of this happened. Like nobody contemporaneously talked about it. And the whole beauty of the like internment parade, the a thousand stars, like... I don't think they would pause, like, pop out her body, do this, and then put it back in. But, I mean, what a story. So, Pedro lived on for another six years after all of this until he was assassinated. Um, he was succeeded by his son, Fernando, which was the little sick boy whose mother was Constanza. And, no, the story's still going on. Don't worry about it. Um, so, Pedro, like, he had his tomb already... I would imagine, under work. Um, so his tomb is placed opposite of that of Inez. And the they were not put side by side, as you might imagine, but they were across from each other. So that, because their belief in, was that um, the day of the last judgment, all the dead come back to life. And he wanted, when the dead come back to life, that they would both get up and like sit up, you know, and like they'd be across from each other and they'd be able to see each other right away. His tomb is equally stunning as hers. Again, um, I'll post the pictures on Instagram and or just like literally Google it. It's so again, it's like Pedro lying there on top of like a big box, little angels helping make him more comfortable. This is like, this is not just like describing art podcast. There's, I'll get to it. There's like, okay. So the same thing, like the sides of the box part on the bottom show like Jesus Christ in his life, etc. Um, so, there are also three concentric wheels carved into it. So the bigger one, called the Wheel of Life, has 12 petals and shows episodes from Pedro and Inez's life together. The second one, the Wheel of Fortune, only has six petals, and its images are interpreted to symbolize purity of the purity of love between them and the immortality and resurrection they will eventually achieve. So the Wheel of Life shows the following moments. Like, this is what's carved into his tomb. So Inez cuddling their children, the couple with their kids... 
Inez and Pedro playing chess, the couple spending time together, Inez watching someone on the floor, Pedro seated on a big throne, Inez caught by her killers, Inez unveiling the face of one of her killers, Inez's assassination, Inez lying dead, the punishment of one of Inez's killers, King Pedro wrapped in a shroud. And then the Wheel of Fortune shows the following moments. Inez seated on Pedro's left side, which indicates they were not married. Inez seated on Pedro's right side, which shows now they're married. The couple side by side looking like they're posing for an official portrait. Um, King Dad expelling Inez from the kingdom. Inez repelling King Dad. King Pedro and Queen Inez lying on the floor. So the foot of the tomb is all about death. Um, well, there's also some carvings on there showing elements of the life of St. Bartholomew, who is known as the patron saint of stutterers. And apparently, Pedro had a stutter. Did not know. Um, and so the words in Portuguese, Ate o fim do mundo, are carved onto the tomb, which means until the end of the world. So a tribute to his love for her. But we're still not done with this story. So to understand the full effect of this love story and the significance of Pedro and Inez, we need to keep going. So, Pedro and Constanza's son, Fernando, reigned for 16 years. He and his wife, Leonor Teles, had one surviving child, a daughter named Beatriz of Portugal. Without a son, it effectively meant that whoever married Beatriz would kind of be the new king of Portugal. So like all the princes from all the kingdoms wanted to marry her including, um, interestingly, um, princes from England and France. Eventually, they chose to marry Beatrice to King Juan I of Castile because that would ease tensions between Portugal and Castile, which had been pretty shitty for a while, obviously, because, well, I guess non-obviously. like It had been shitty during Pedro's era, but then since then, Fernando had waged three wars against Castile. So this marriage was intended to put an end to hostilities with a union of the two crowns, but... Um, it was not a widely accepted solution because um, because Portugal was represented in this marriage by Beatriz um, and Castile was represented by Juan, a man. It, and because of the like way that gender relations worked um, in dynasties and things, it kind of meant that like Castile would become more important and Portugal like Portugal would be kind of like subsumed by Castile. Lots of nobles were fiercely opposed to that possibility, but they could not decide who they preferred to be the new king instead. There were two potential alternate kings of Portugal. Like they wanted to just like get rid of Fernando, replace him with a new king. Um, the two potential replacement kings were both sons of our Pedro. One of them was Joao Castro, who is Pedro's son with Inez. The other was also named Joao, so like we've moved from a Pedro era to a Joao era, and this was Joao of Avis, and he was the son, a son that Pedro had had uh, two years after Inez's death. He had had a son with a Galician peasant woman named Teresa Guile Lorenzo, so um, in terms of Pedro getting the Lady Jane Memorial outstanding supporting performance award like he did so much to just love and honor Inez even long after she was dead and then I'm like oh but he had a child with someone else but I'm like you know what that's fine like Inez was dead he took comfort in the arms of someone else that person had a son um I don't think that discounts Pedro although I do prefer in handing out this award that the people who get it never waver in their love of the main heroine but we'll we'll talk about this after anyway so there's two potential new kings of portugal both sons of pedro um, both called joao and this all kind of took off because king fernando who is the brother of both joao's um half brother died and then let's see so he died and then his wife, Queen Leonor, assumed regency in the name of Beatrice and Juan because they had not had a child yet. And as per ever, a whole succession crisis happened. This is like not dissimilar to what happened with Dida and all of the who's going to be king situations and that. Anyway, big succession happened. And over the next two years, it was Joao versus Joao versus Juan. Um, a big turning point one of many, was when the bubonic plague struck 
the Castilian forces, forcing Juan of Castile to retreat. And so he kind of was out of the running. So then it was just Joao versus Joao, Pedro's son versus Pedro's son. But then evidence came out, maybe forged, that quote-unquote proved that the letter that said like Pedro and Inez were totally married don't worry about it someone was like "Ooh, that letter was maybe a forgery um which made which meant that Joao Castro Inez's son was not legitimate like his kind of edge in this battle against the other Joao was that he was the legitimate son of Pedro but if he's illegitimate then he and Joao of Aves are more on the same level as each other so that was a blow to him Joao of Aves, Aves uh, got some support from England. England agreed to help. They won a big battle. And eventually Joao of Aves was proclaimed king of Portugal. So fun fact, though. So this English slash Portuguese alliance uh, would be renewed uh, with the Treaty of Windsor. So this treaty, like this is the treaty that they signed, and it's still valid today, which established a pact of mutual support between Portugal and England. In fact, Portugal would use it again in 1640. Um, they got England's help to expel the Spanish Habsburg kings from the country. Again, during the Peninsular War, um, this England-Portuguese alliance would also be used by Britain, like when England became part of Britain, in World War II, um, which allowed the Allied forces to establish bases on the Azores. And then during the 1982 Falklands War. So like that is an old treaty that just kept being used. I know what you're thinking, what about Inez? And here's the thing. Her legacy would go on in a very major way. So the thing is, Inez and Pedro's son, Joao, did not become king of Portugal, but their lineage did continue on, just not as king. So their daughter, also called Beatriz, that's like the third Beatriz in the story, married Sancho Alfonso. And their daughter, Leonor of Albuquerque married Fernando I of Aragon, and their son was Juan II of Aragon, who married Juana Enriquez. I promise this is going to get a point. And their son was Fernando Ferdinand of Aragon, a.k.a. Ferdinand from Ferdinand and Isabella. So Inez and Pedro's line leads to Ferdinand from Isabella and Ferdinand. So that means that Ferdinand and Isabella's children, Juan of Castile, Catherine of Aragon, were descendants of Inez and Pedro, which means that Philip II and his descendants were also Inez's descendants, which means the next several centuries of monarchs in Western Europe were all descendants of Pedro and Inez because everyone kept marrying their cousins, etc. But wait, there's more. So the national commotion and the aura that was created around these events, like the Pedro and Inez story, like even at the time, it was a big deal. Everyone was just like loving this love story. Um, it immediately became, you know, a, a story that people told each other. Like this could not go unnoticed, not just by people in Portugal, but all over the place. Um, the first known literary treatment, like uh, a chronicle written about this love story, dates from the 14th century. So just like 100 years later, it was written by a Jewish writer, uh, David Ben Yom Tov Ibn Bilia. And since then, the story has inspired a diversity of approaches um, comparable only to the story of Romeo and Juliet. Inez's memory has been celebrated everywhere in epic and lyric poetry, novels, dramas, paintings, and music. More than 120 operas were created about this story in Italy alone. Um, it's been made into a play, a musical, ballet, opera. So in all different countries, but obviously in Portugal, the story achieved its greatest artistic and literary recognition. So medieval royal chroniclers wrote about it. There's a long tradition of literary works down the centuries. Um, the story continues to inspire almost all of the most renowned Portuguese writers. And if you're like, this should be a movie. Oh, it's been a movie. So the first movie was in 1910. There was a silent movie. Then there was also a movie in 1944, 1997, a 2005 TV miniseries. And then most recently, there was a 2018 movie um, released internationally under the title The Dead Queen. Um, the Portuguese title is Dom Pedro e Inês, and that movie is based on the novel by Rosa Lobato da Feria. So there is a saying in Portuguese. I did check with Alicia, who has helped me with some Portuguese cultural stuff in this story, to ask, like, have you heard people say this? And she hadn't really, and she asked her parents, and they hadn't really, but 
let's bring the saying back. I don't know. So there is a saying in Portuguese. Um, it is too late. Inês is dead. Is a saying. Anyway, it's too late. Inês is dead. So anyway, the story, this is the thing. So like literally like the zombie queen, the like crowning a skeleton probably didn't happen. But the way that her life, so like her life after death has just been in literature and plays and culture and just like this love story. And also, and a lot of that's because of how Pedro commemorated her, like these beautiful tombs, which you can still see. I believe the place where they are is like a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Like Pedro made sure nobody forgot about her. And and no one has. So this is the story of Inez de Castro. We'll look at scoring for her. Actually, first, the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance. I am going to give this to Pedro. So because, yes, although he did have a child with another woman, he... I th- he also like hunted down a rip of the hearts of Inez's killers. He also like had the most beautiful funeral procession in world history. He also made these gorgeous tombs. He made sure she was never forgotten. Um, just some of the potential scheminess he did being like, oh, we were actually secretly married. So our children are actually legitimate. Don't worry about it. Like Pedro, I, I appreciate how he loved her so clearly. But we're scoring just Inez herself, not the story, not her and him. And in terms of scandaliciousness, I feel like there's not that much really because, I mean, okay, so she's a lady in waiting. She went to court. She became his mistress, which is like, ooh la. But like, that happened a lot, frankly. Like, this just got more interesting because in a sort of Anne Boleyn-like way, like Pedro loved her more than men were expected to love their mistresses, which I guess is scandaliciousness, like his monogamy. Um, but Inez herself, like she showed up. She was amazing. He loved her. Um, I'm comfortable giving this. Um, I don't know. Like they, like they had a little domestic life. Like she was murdered, but she did not murder anybody. She herself did not do scandalous things really, other than just like be with Pedro. I'm going to give her a five for scandaliciousness. Um, and is a scheminess. Now, I don't know what she did versus what her brothers did. We have to kind of put them together because otherwise I don't know anything about her. So it was her and her brothers were encouraging him to like take over Castile, etc., which is pretty schemy, but were they sending letters and aqueducts? You know, but that was Pedro. Like, I feel like her scheminess, like this is a great saga, but I don't have high hopes for Inez herself, you know, getting a, iconic score here which is fair um that like she achieved other things other than getting a high scandalicious score in the fredigan memorial scandaliciousness scale and as a scheminess i'm gonna give her a six because her maybe she was involved in the stuff her brothers are doing um significance this is where i just like i couldn't figure this out myself so i asked alicia who knows about portugal um is from Portugal. Um, and she said probably like a seven or an eight based on Inez's sort of cultural importance. So I'm going to trust on that and just give her a sort of eight for significance because of everything I just said about her importance as like a muse um, to literature and stuff. And then also because of her, who her descendants became like Ferdinand and Isabella, you know, that was because of her. Sexism bonus. Um, so it was kind of like it's a classist thing, like the fact that she wasn't allowed to marry Pedro more so than a sexism thing. But then the th- where they were like, how can we stop these brothers from scheming against Pedro? I know it's by killing her. It's like, why would that stop the brothers? Like, So they really blamed her for what Pedro is doing, which is inherently a sexist shitty thing to do. She was, in fact, murdered. So I think in terms of sexism bonus, I'm going to give her a a seven, I think. Um, and so what does this all add up to? That's a 26. So where does that put her? There's a number of very respectable people with a 26, including Frances Howard, Ethel Flood, Lady of the Mercians, Anne Askew, Lady Anne Stanley, Margaret of Anjou. So certainly a respectable score here for Inez de Castro. What a saga, honestly. 
so yeah all that's left is just to remind you of a couple things so um if you go to vulgarhistory.com there's links to all the stuff there um you can listen to past episodes and instagram or at vulgarhistorypod and if you go to vulgarhistory.store vulgarhistory.store you can look for our merch um, and you can always use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. And if you want to get more of my storytelling, uh, you can support me on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash Writer, and that's where I post for Patreons um, every month. So this asshole, the episode's about horrible men of history. Um, also, that's where you can find the Vulgar Peace Theater Um discussions with me Lenawa Johnson and Alison Epstein about costume dramas I would love if I can find a way to get it in Canada for us to watch The Dead Queen the movie about Inez de Castro but as of right now not available where I live in Canada um you can also follow us on Twitter at Vulgar History and yeah our international tour of scandaliciousness continues on next week with another super scandalicious story um and I hope you're all doing okay. And keep your mask on, keep your tits out, and I'll talk to you all next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.